On the verses that we're going to have a look at this morning, just verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3, if you've got a Bible open there, Paul gives us a warning and then a declaration. I want to have a look at both of those in turn. So firstly, Paul's warning. In verse 2 of chapter 3, Paul says three times, look out, watch out, beware. The apostle is very concerned. He's troubled. It says there in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who is Paul speaking about? Who is he so concerned about? Well, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, has been going around the Mediterranean world preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And as he's preached that gospel, people have come to faith. And those people who have come to faith have gathered in communities, these churches, Churches have been established throughout the Mediterranean, but Paul had this persistent problem. God had worked powerfully through him, establishing churches. But this problem kept on coming up for him because he'd leave a town, a city, and then other teachers, typically those of Jewish background who had become Christian, would come in and they'd say, look, Paul is, Paul's good. In fact, perhaps even great. He told you. He preached this wonderful message of Jesus' death and his resurrection. That is fundamental. That is wonderful. But what he didn't tell you about is circumcision. He didn't tell you about the law and how the law needs to be kept to be properly acceptable to God. And if you're struggling, if you're finding it hard as a Christian, then that's because Paul hasn't told you about how to have a full experience as a Christian. And to have a full experience as a Christian, to find it, well, you know, a, a little bit easier, you need to be circumcised. This is the kind of way in which those who would come in after Paul spoke. They affirmed Jesus in his death, but at the same time, they undermined it by adding these other requirements for Christians to engage in. Christians who weren't Jewish, those from Gentile, non-Jewish background, are being required to partake in Jewish ceremonial law, summarised in circumcision. And so Paul is writing to this church that he's established and he's concerned because he's not there but they are, and they're coming in. And this message is, well, it's, it's persuasive. And Paul is saying to this church, watch out. And he even descends into something that our mothers typically tell us not to do. Uh, he descends into name-calling there in verses 1 to 3. In verse 2, he calls them dogs, which is not a particularly polite way of speaking in modern English world. And nor in the ancient world. He calls them evildoers, mutilators. And so on the surface of it, nothing could seem, I think, more irrelevant than for us today. We, we don't have people coming into our church compelling us to engage in Jewish ceremonial law, namely <coughs> circumcision. circumcision. You know, what relevance could a first century controversy that pertains really roughly to half of those here in church this morning. What 
what you know, kind of male Jewish surgical procedure, what could that have to do with us today? Well, I think everything. But to understand that, we need to understand what circumcision meant for a first century Jew. Because for those who would come in after the Apostle Paul, circumcision was so very important. It was huge for them. It was huge for them in three ways. Firstly, circumcision identified you. Secondly, circumcision qualified you. And thirdly, circumcision protected you. So firstly, circumcision identified you. Circumcision for the Jewish person in the first century was a marker of being God's people. Um, you know, uh, when you're at school, you, you get certain badges um, for being part of a team or doing something well. Well, this was the marker. This was the badge of being a genuine Jewish person. It was an irreversible, concrete marker of being one of God's people. You belong. Why? Because you're circumcised. So firstly, it identified you. Secondly, it qualified you. It allowed you to serve God and to participate in the worship of God in the temple. To be circumcised meant you could participate not just in the, the temple worship, but also in all the covenantal meals. It was a badge, yes, but it was also a passport. A passport to share fully in the life of worship of the God of Israel. So it identified you, it qualified you, but thirdly, it protected you. David Brooks, in his book, uh, a couple of years ago, New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote a book himself entitled The Road to Character. And what it's really interesting is it, uh, it surveys the history of Western culture and about the development of character. And he says, basically, throughout most of Western history, uh, people have had a clear sense of two realities. Firstly, that people are precious. People have been wonderfully made. But the second reality is that people are also morally flawed. Now, for most of Western history, it recognised that both people are wonderfully made and flawed together. Okay? But in the last 50 years or so, Brooke says that what we've done is we've separated out those two. And so what we have is those who are wonderfully made and those who are flawed. Now, generally, those who are flawed are everyone else over there, and I'm the one who's wonderfully made. But throughout most of Western culture, those two things are held together. This, you can be both wonderfully made and yet deeply flawed. For the Jewish person in the first century, they were aware of their flaws, of their fallenness, of their sin. And so they wanted to be protected from sin. We don't want to be protected from sin in our modern world. We want to indulge in it. But for the Jewish person in the first century, they want to be protected from it. They want to be protected from the evil without and the evil within. They want to be protected from the temptation of sin. And so, what do you do? Well, in the first century, in the centuries before it, a view developed in the Jewish mind that if you were circumcised, this would protect you. It would be a barrier 
that would protect you from sin and temptation. And so this group of people coming into this church and they're saying circumcision is so important because it identifies you, it qualifies you, but it also, it also protects you. And it allows you to live a full and flourishing spiritual life. And who doesn't want to live a full and flourishing spiritual life? You need, you need to be circumcised. But that seems irrelevant to us. It really does, doesn't it? It seems just so far outside of our experience, outside of our struggles. And yet, we have to ask our questions question. We have to ask ourselves a question. Are there ways in which we add to Jesus and his gospel? Are there things that we think identify the people of God? External things that identify the people of God? Are there things that we think qualify God's people? Are there things that we think protect God's people? Because the propensity to add something to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, to gain identity or qualification or protection, is still with us today. Let me start with a pretty easy example. There are certain churches, uh, if you were to go there today, just cast an eye around, no one's dressed in a suit. If you were to go to a church not dressed in a suit, uh, there are some churches, I think, who would look down on you, who might question the validity of your faith. You're coming to God to worship Him dressed like that. And could it be that if someone who went to that kind of church came to our church, they're dressed to the nines, full suit, they're a man, we might kind of we might be tempted to look down on them. Don't they know it's not about what you wear, it's about worshipping Jesus? See, there are external markers that we place there. We also do it with our language. Uh, You know, you're talking to someone and and they speak like a Christian. Uh, Things are so blessed. and Everything is a blessing. There's a certain language, and you think, well, if someone speaks about everything being a blessing, they must be a Christian. And sometimes we're worried if people use kind of graphic language that we're not familiar with, or it's not kind of part of our kind of social circle, well, then they couldn't be a Christian. And often we equate godliness with our level of education. We're very into the Bible, a church like ours. And so the more educated you are, the more kind of godly and Christ-like you must be. Ways in which we introduce so subtly these markers to signify what it, what it means to identify as God's people, what, what it means to qualify as God's people. If you're, you know, we even do it with mood sometimes. If you're a bright, bubbly, friendly, energetic person, well then, you know, you must be a prime candidate to be a Christian. There are certain Christian courses that you can do. I mean, good courses, nothing wrong with a course. But if you've done the course, then it can become a, a way of qualifying someone as, in your mind, as being a valid uh, member of 
God's people. We even do it with something as good as baptism. And many churches do this. That if someone is baptised, if they've engaged in this good ceremonial thing that the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do, then that external reality must signify that they are a real and true Christian. See, all these things are adding. They're adding to the basic and fundamental reality that the markers of identity as a Christian, the eligibility for being part of the people of God, and the thing that protects us from sin is the same thing. And it's nothing more. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying here, if we place any external mark other than faith and repentance, we place any external marker, he's saying that we're reversing the gospel, that in fact the gospel is no good news at all. And this is a big deal for the Apostle Paul. It's a big deal. You can see his language, dogs, evildoers, mutilators. And Paul, in using this language, he, he uses it with bitter irony. Because all those three labels, those very naughty names, the Apostle Paul calls these false teachers, they are the names or they are the way in which Jewish people referred to Gentile people, uh, typically uh, in the first century. Uh, Dogs were unclean. And so in the Jewish mind, the non-Jewish person was unclean. Evildoers. The Jewish person saw the non-Jewish person as an evildoer because they didn't follow God's law and they were mutilators of the flesh. Probably, I think this is in the sense of their pagan religious worship. So Paul's saying quite dramatically, the very labels that you would heap on the Gentiles, dogs, mutilators, evildoers, are the very things that you are. You're the dog. You're the mutilator. You're the mutilator. Paul's upset. He's concerned. It's not the Gentiles who are unqualified to share in the people of God. It's these false teachers. So why is Paul so upset? Why is he so graphic in his language? Well, in order to answer that, we have to move to that second part, his declaration. We've just seen his warning, but in verse 3 we see his declaration. Have a look there in verse 3. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. This is bold of the Apostle Paul. Paul is speaking about Gentile Christians. And he says that these Gentile Christians are actually the circumcised ones uncircumcised as they might literally be. Paul is saying, we are qualified as God's covenant people. doesn't matter about the Jewish ceremony that's either happened or hasn't happened. We, we are the circumcision. We are the true people of God. We are those who can actually serve God. We are the ones who have all the spiritual resources for a full and meaningful spiritual life. He goes on to say, we are the ones who worship. 
God, by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we put no confidence in the flesh. These are the markers of the church for Paul. Worship in the Spirit. Glory in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. God's people reject the flesh. And when Paul uh, uses the word flesh there, it's important that we understand what he is and what he isn't saying. When he says we put no confidence in the flesh, what we need to remember is he's, he's not undermining the reality of being human. He's not undermining the importance of the material world. Like, you know, uh, we put no confidence in this flesh because we're just um, uh, spirits floating on clouds. Okay, that's, that's not what he's speaking about here. Now, we read in the scriptures that God made the material world and that the material world in itself is very good. He loves the material world so much that he entered into our world. And he loves the body so much that he took on the body. And that the Lord Jesus, in his resurrected glorious state, is now in heaven as a human, bodily. And so when Paul says he puts no confidence in the flesh, or we are to put no confidence in the flesh, he means a life and existence that is separated from the presence and power of God. When Paul talks about flesh here, he's talking about a way of thinking and a way of living for which God has no reference. A flesh that is just what we have here. Just stuff. Just the material outside of God. The merely human is what Paul is speaking of here. And to put your confidence in the flesh is to put your hope in, well, if there's no God, all you've got is human ideas. All you've got is human creativity, human powers and human resources. And where this leads a group of people, if God is not there, if there's no one outside of us, what does that do? If there's no one outside of us, we're reduced to self-absorption and self-reliance. And self-absorption and self-reliance creates kind of empty ceremonies, things that kind of have to look kind of spiritual. Our world gives us advice. In fact, you know, Ellen DeGeneres a couple of years ago was addressing college students who are graduating, and, and the most significant thing that she can say to these students is this, and I quote, be true to yourself and everything will be fine. And everyone nods. Oh, that's... That's right, isn't it? Be, just be true to yourself and everything else will be fine. Follow your own truth. It sounds a lot like what? It sounds a lot like putting confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul isn't undermining a sense of self here. It's not as if he's advocating that we have to have this kind of view of ourselves where we're just utterly terrible and everything that we do is absolutely rubbish. No, that's not what he's speaking about here. He's actually calling humans to see that there is something beyond us that is so much more wonderful and is, in fact, absolutely essential for the flourishing of human life. He wants to lead 
Christians to put their confidence in something that's not themselves, outside of themselves, indeed outside of this world. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, because in essence, what circumcision is, isn't something merely human, is it? It's not as if humans decided to, you know, engage in this particular practice. No, in fact, what happened? Well, God commanded circumcision himself. God commanded Abraham to do it as a sign of covenant. And so why is Paul calling these people mutilators of the flesh for circumcision if God has commanded them? Well, it's because circumcision's time is up. Circumcision was a placeholder. It was a sign of the Old Testament people of God in expectation in looking forward to the time when the Messiah would come. And reimpose circumcision is to put circumcision in the place of Christ. I don't know but, uh, if they still do it, but you know, when you go into Ikea, they have a room set up, you know, you can go into the room, and there's, you know, kind of, maybe there's a bed in there, or couches, and, and then the, the TVs that they put up there, they, they used to put in these like fake, like plastic cardboard TVs. Do, do you remember that? And I was always kind of curious, you know, really more about the fake plastic TV and these kind of setups. But, you know, that, that's the same for circumcision. That fake plastic TV in the room has a role. But if you were to buy all that furniture and then take it home and put the fake plastic TV, when, when, when you've got the real kind of TV just sitting there, then that would be crazy. But that's what the Jews are doing. They're denying the reality of what it means for Jesus to have come. They're focusing on what prepared them for that reality when the reality is here. And in Paul's mind, that's no gospel. There's no good news with a fake TV when the real one is here. To impose circumcision on the people of God is to deny that Jesus has come. It's to grasp at the shadows instead of the substance. To look at the sign but not enjoy the reality. And it may not be their intention to deny Jesus, but that is what is so scary here. That, in, that for these false teachers, and perhaps for those even that aren't teaching falsely, but are caught up in this thinking, they don't mean to undermine the importance of Jesus. But it can happen. And this is why Paul is so concerned. Because it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to undermine Jesus in the community of God's people. When we add, when we add our cultural proclivities, our own rules, to identify the people of God, to qualify them to serve as the people of God and to seek to protect them. When we try to do that, we deny Jesus and his coming. And it's dangerous because it's so subtle and we can miss it. And so how would we know that we're putting confidence in the flesh or that we're not putting confidence in the flesh? This will finish. I think there are many ways. I mean, it could be the literal ritual where if... Um, you know, someone has undergone baptism. By virtue of the fact of their baptism, we conclude that they must be a Christian. Baptism doesn't make people Christian. Faith in the Lord Jesus does. And even for a child who is baptised, the baptism is done in the expectation as they grow that they will take on the promises that their parents have made on their behalf. 
It's faith in the Lord Jesus that saves. And so there's, there's an obvious example where we could be placing confidence in the flesh, but um, here's one that's a little more personal. On the one hand, if we place confidence in the flesh, then it leads to a kind of pride. Because at the end of the day, it's about me. And if you're a person who's placing confidence in the flesh, then you're speaking to others. And in your mind, you're kind of ranking yourself above them. And you quite like it when they uh, speak about some of their weaknesses, because um, you can see yourself as a little more superior. You know, you don't, you don't have those kinds of troubles. And so pride is a way in which we place confidence in ourselves. There's kind of boasting that's associated. Oh, it's subtle, and it's very polite, but you're pretty good at working in the conversations, just how good you are, and what you've done, how knowledgeable you are, and what a great Christian you are. So there's a sense in which we can place confidence in the flesh, and it puffs us up. It's all about us. But there's another confidence in the flesh that's almost the opposite, but it comes from the same root. It's confidence in the flesh that has this self-loathing, where there is a contempt for yourself. You know, what good am I? What can I do? And I despair. What, what, what's the point? A hopelessness. Now, the person who is prideful and boasting places a confidence in the flesh, but a person who is utterly despairing also places a confidence in the flesh. Why? Because for both people, it's all about them. It's not about God's work in us. It's about them. Both can be boasting their flesh because both fundamentally are about our own strength. Paul says, God's people reject the flesh. And rather than boasting in themselves, what do they boast in there in verse 3? They boast in Christ Jesus. They glory in Christ Jesus. They lavish themselves in the richness of what it is to be his child. For Jesus is for the people of God. He's for the church. He's for people like you and me. People who struggle with a sense of worthlessness sometimes. And who at the same time, perhaps even ten minutes later, can struggle with a sense of pride. Jesus is for the people of God every step of the way. Not just, you know, it's kind of the front end of when you become a Christian, you trust in Jesus, and then you, you, know, you go beyond him. No. Every step of the way, not just at the start, but all the time. Everything else takes a back seat to Jesus. What hope have we if it wasn't for Jesus? Without him, in Paul's mind, we are without hope and without God in this world. Jesus is the one who's rescued us. People who have been enslaved to sin. And you know what? Jesus is the one who has rescued the selfish. He's the selfless one who has rescued the selfish. He's God's humility who has come for the boastful. This is who Jesus is. And so we praise and we rejoice in knowing that we often boast in the flesh. But we've been rescued. And because of him, we can rely on his work in our lives. He's rescued us, but he's also working in us now. Verse 3. 
It's about relying there in verse 3 about God, not in ourselves, but in God and his spirit. We worship by the spirit of God. That's what Paul says. It's the spirit of God that qualifies us to serve and nothing else. Not any external sign, not any spiritual razzmatazz, but the spirit of God. Spirit of God marks out the people of God. The Spirit of God marks us out, but He doesn't just mark us out. He empowers us to serve. We serve. We who serve by the Spirit of God. We're dependent upon the Spirit. And that's the antidote to boasting in ourselves and in the flesh. We're dependent on the Spirit of God. We're relying on His Spirit. And when we do that, we know that failure doesn't crush us. We know that giving things a go doesn't overwhelm us. We know that we can persevere when it's hard. Why? Because God's Spirit is working through us. We're not doing this by ourselves. What seems too much for us is not too much for God's Spirit in us. When we take on sometimes things that are too much for us, we... When we take them on, we don't take them on because we're naive or are unwise. We take them on because God does great things beyond the servants that he uses. God's Spirit empowers us to serve in ways that we never would have thought possible. And I want to ask you this morning, can we see that? Can you see that as a church? Can you see God's Spirit at work within his people, to do far more than we think that we can. Not in a boasting way, but not in a despairing way either, but in humble confidence in God and his spirit at work in us, because in him and in the Lord Jesus we have everything we need.